Hello dear friends and welcome once again to the cosy fireside of the Great Library of Dreams. I'm your host Mr Jim Moon and as ever there's a seat by the fireside just waiting for you. Come on in, make yourself comfortable. Well as many of you will no doubt be aware, February is now traditionally Women in Horror Month and that provided me with a perfect excuse to read a quartet of my most favourite tales by female authors. And believe you me, it was a tough job whittling it down to a short list of four. For over the years, the fairer sex has proved itself to be just as fearsome frightening as the fellas. Anyhow, I thought a great place to start was a horror tale from a very famous writer, from a lady who we associate more with classic children's literature. We know her as the author of The Railway Children, the Phoenix in the Carpet, The Enchanted Castle, Five Children and It. Yes, the great E. Nesbitt. However, while we remember her now for her children's books, she wrote widely in many fields and wrote an awful lot for grown-ups too. And she had a particular passion for the weird and the uncanny. And in fact, in, and in, fact, in her lifetime, she published several volumes featuring her short tales of the strange and the macabre. Now the story I have for you tonight comes from her first collection of horror stories published back in 1893, entitled simply Grim Tales. Now this story, at first, seems to be a charming, somewhat comedic tale of a country romance. However, as you'll hear, things do take a rather dark and indeed a rather grim turn. John Charrington's Wedding by E. Nesbitt No one ever thought that May Foster would marry John Charrington, but he thought differently, and things which John Charrington intended had a queer way of coming to pass. He asked her to marry him before he went up to Oxford. She laughed and refused him. He asked her again next time he came home. Again she laughed, tossed her dainty blonde head, and again refused. A third time he asked her. She said it was becoming a confirmed bad habit and laughed at him more than ever. John was not the only man who wanted to marry her. She was the belle of our village coterie and we were all in love with her more or less. It was a sort of fashion like heliotrope ties or Inverness capes. Therefore we were as much annoyed as surprised when John Charrington walked into our little local club we held it in a loft over the saddlers, I remember, 
and invited us all to his wedding. Your wedding? You don't mean it. Who's the happy fair? When's it to be? John Charrington filled his pipe and lighted it before he replied. Then he said, I'm sorry to deprive you fellows of your only joke, but Miss Forster and I are to be married in September. You don't mean it. He's got the mitten again and it's turned his head. No, I said, rising. I see it's true. Lend me a pistol, someone, or a first-class fare to the other end of nowhere. Charrington has bewitched the only pretty girl in our twenty-mile radius. Was it mesmerism or a love potion, Jack? Neither, sir, but a gift you'll never have. Perseverance and the best luck a man ever had in this world. There was something in his voice that silenced me, and all the chaff of the other fellows failed to draw him further. The queer thing about it was that when we congratulated Miss Forster, she blushed and smiled and dimpled, and, for all the world, as though she were in love with him, and had been in love with him all the time. On my word, I think she had. Women are strange creatures. We were all asked to the wedding. In Brixham, everyone who was anybody knew everybody who was anyone. My sisters were, I truly believe, more interested in the trousseau than the bride herself, and I was to be best man. The coming marriage was much canvassed at afternoon tea tables and at our little club over the saddlers, and the question was always asked, does she care for him? I used to ask that question myself in the early days of their engagement, but after a certain evening in August I never asked it again. I was coming home from the club through the churchyard. Our church is on a time-grown hill, and the turf about it is so thick and soft that one's footsteps are noiseless. I made no sound as I vaulted the low lichened wall, and threaded my way between the tombstones. It was at the same instant that I heard John Charrington's voice, and I saw her. May was sitting on a low flat gravestone, a face turned towards the false splendour of the western sun. Its expression ended at once and forever, any question of love for him. It was transfigured to a beauty I should not have believed possible, even on that beautiful little face. John lay at her feet, and it was his voice that broke the stillness of the golden August evening. My dear, my dear, I believe I should come back from the dead if you wanted me. I coughed at once to indicate my presence, and passed on into the shadow, fully enlightened. The wedding was to be in early September. Two days before, I had to run up to town on business. The train was late, of course, for we are on the southeastern. And, as I stood grumbling with my watch in my hand, whom should I see but John Charrington and May Forster? They were walking up and down the unfrequented end of the platform, arm in arm, looking into each other's eyes careless of the sympathetic interest of the porters. Of course, I knew better than to hesitate a moment before burying myself in the booking office, and it was not till the train drew up at the platform that I obtrusively passed the pair with my Gladstone and took the corner in a first-class smoking carriage. I did this with as good an air of not seeing them as I could assume. I pride myself on my discretion, but if John were travelling alone, I wanted his company. I had it. Hello, old man, came his cheery voice as he swung his bag into my carriage. Here's luck, I was expecting a dull journey. 
Where are you off to? I asked, discretion still bidding me to turn my eyes away, though I saw, without looking, that hers were red-rimmed. To old Branbridges, he answered, shutting the door and leaning out for a last word with his sweetheart. Oh, I wish you wouldn't go, John, she was saying in a low, earnest voice. I feel certain something will happen. Do you think I should let anything happen to me on the day after tomorrow our wedding day? Don't go, she answered, with a pleading intensity which would have set my Gladstone on the platform and me after it. But she wasn't speaking to me. John Charrington was made differently. He rarely changed his opinions, never his resolutions. He only stroked the little ungloved hands that lay on the carriage door. I must, May. The old boy's been awfully good to me, and now he's dying, I must go and see him. But I shall come home in time for... The rest of the parting was lost in a whisper, and in the rattling lurch of the starting train. You're sure to come? She spoke as the train moved. Nothing shall keep me, he answered, and we steamed out. After he had seen the last of the little figure on the platform, he leaned back in his corner and kept silence for a minute. When he spoke, it was to explain to me that his godfather, whose heir he was, lay dying at Peasmarsh Place, some fifty miles away, and had sent for John, and John had felt bound to go. I shall surely be back tomorrow, he said, or if not the day after, in heaps of time. Thank heaven one hasn't to get up in the middle of the night to get married nowadays. And suppose Mr. Branbridge dies? Alive or dead, I mean to be married on Thursday, John answered, lighting a cigar and unfolding the times. At Peasmarsh Station we said goodbye and he got out, and I saw him ride off. I went to London where I stayed the night. When I got home the next afternoon, very wet one by the way, my sister greeted me with, Where's Mr. Charrington? Goodness knows, I answered testily. Every man since Cain has presented that kind of question. I thought you might have heard from him, she went on. As you're to give him away tomorrow. Isn't he back? I asked, for I had confidently expected to find him at home. No, Geoffrey. My sister Fanny always has a way of jumping to conclusions, especially such conclusions as were least favourable to her fellow creatures. He has not returned, and, what is more, you may depend on it he won't. You mark my words, there'll be no wedding tomorrow. My sister Fanny has a power of annoying me which no other human being possesses. You mark my words, I retorted with asperity. You had better give up making such a thundering idiot of yourself. There'll be more wedding tomorrow than you'll ever have the first part in. Prophecy which, by the way, came true. But though I could snarl confidently to my sister, I did not feel so comfortable when, late that night, I, standing on the doorstep of John's house, heard that he had not returned. I went home gloomily through the rain. Next morning brought a brilliant blue sky, gold sun, and all such softness of air and beauty of cloud as go to make up a perfect day. I woke with a vague feeling of having gone to bed anxious, and of being rather averse to facing that anxiety in the full light of wakefulness. But with my shaving water came a note from John, which relieved my mind and sent me up to the Forsters with a light heart. May was in the garden. I saw her blue gown through the hollyhocks as the lodge gates swung to behind me. So I did not go up to the house, but turned aside down the turfed path. He's written to you too, she said, without preliminary greeting, when I reached her side. 
Yes, I'm to meet him at the station at three, and come straight to the church. Her face looked pale, but there was a brightness in her eyes, and a tender quiver about the mouth, that spoke of renewed happiness. Mr. Branbridge begged him so to stay another night, that he had not the heart to refuse, she went on. He is so kind, but I wish he hadn't stayed. I was at the station at half-past two. I felt rather annoyed with John. It seemed a sort of slight to the beautiful girl who he loved, that he should come, as it were, out of breath and with the dust of travel upon him, to take her hand, which some of us would have given the best years of our lives to take. But when the three o'clock train glided in, and glided out again, having brought no passengers to our little station, I was more than annoyed. There was no other train for thirty-five minutes. I calculated that, with much hurry, we might just get to the church in time for the ceremony. But, oh, what a fool to miss the first train! What other man could have done it? That thirty-five minutes seemed a year, as I wandered round the station, reading the advertisements and the timetables and the company's bylaws, and getting more and more angry with John Charrington. This confidence in his own power of getting everything he wanted, the minute he wanted it, was leading him too far. I hate waiting. Everyone does, but I believe I hate it more than anyone else. The 3.35 was late, of course. I ground my pipe between my teeth and stamped with impatience as I watched the signals. Click. The signal went down. Five minutes later, I flung myself into the carriage that I had brought for John. Drive to the church, I said, as someone shut the door. Mr Charrington hasn't come by this train. Anxiety now replaced anger. What had become of the man? Could he have been taken suddenly ill? I had never known him to have a day's illness in his life. But even so, he might have telegraphed. An awful accident must have happened to him. The thought that he played with a false never... No, not for a moment, entered my head. Yes, something terrible had happened to him, and on me lay the task of telling his bride. I almost wished the carriage would upset and break my head, so that someone else might tell her, not I. Not I, who? But that's nothing to do with his story. It was five minutes to four when we drew up at the churchyard gate. A double row of eager onlookers lined the path from Lichgate to Porch. I sprang from the carriage and passed up between them. Our gardener had a good front place near the door. I stopped. Are they waiting still, Biles? I asked him, simply to gain time. For, of course, I knew they were waiting by the waiting crowd's attentive attitude. Waiting, sir? No, no, sir. Why, it must be over by now. Over? Then Mr. Charrington's come? To the minute, sir. Must have missed you somehow. And I say, sir... Lowering his voice, I never see Sir John the least bit so afore, but in my opinion he's been drinking pretty free. His clothes were all dusty and his face were like a sheet. Tell you I didn't like the looks of him at all, and the folks inside are saying all sorts of things. You see, something's gone very wrong with Mr John, and he's tried liquor. He looked like a ghost, and he went in with all his eyes straight before him, with never a look or a word for none of us. Him that was always such a gentleman. I had never heard Biles make so long a speech. The crowd in the churchyard were talking in whispers and getting ready rice and slippers to throw at the bride and bridegroom. The ringers were ready with their hands on the ropes to ring out the merry peal as the bride and bridegroom should come out. A murmur from the church announced them. Out they came. 
Biles was right. John Charrington did not look himself. There was dust on his coat, and his hair was disarranged. He seemed to have been in some row, for there was a black mark above his eyebrow. He was deathly pale, but his pallor was not greater than that of the bride, who might have been carved in ivory, dress, veil, orange blossoms, face and all. As they passed out, the ringers stopped. There were six of them. And then, on the ears expecting their gay wedding peal, came the slow tolling of the passing bell. Thrill of horror at so foolish a jest from the ringers passed through us all, but the ringers themselves dropped the ropes and fled like rabbits out into the sunlight. The bride shuddered, and grey shadows came about her mouth. But the bridegroom led her down the path where the people stood with the handfuls of rice. But the handfuls were never thrown, and the wedding bells never rang. In vain the ringers were urged to remedy their mistake. They protested with many whispered expletives that they would see themselves further first. In a hush like the hush in the chamber of death, the bridal pair passed into their carriage, and his door slammed behind them. Then the tongues were loosed. The babble of anger, wonder, conjecture from the guests and the spectators. "'If I'd seen his condition, sir,' said old Foster to me as we drove off, "'I would have stretched him on the floor of the church, sir, by heaven I would, before I'd have let him marry my daughter.' He then pushed his head out the window. "'Drive like hell!' he cried to the coachman. "'Don't spare the horses!' We obeyed. We passed the bride's carriage. I forbore to look at it, and old Foster turned his head away and swore. We reached home before it. We stood in the hall doorway, in the blazing afternoon sun, and in about half a minute we heard wheels crunching the gravel. When the carriage stopped in front of the steps, old Foster and I ran down. Be heaven! The carriage is empty, and yet... I had the door open in a minute, and this is what I saw. No sign of John Charrington, and of May his wife, only a huddled heap of white satin, lying half on the floor of the carriage and half on the seat. I drove straight here, sir, said the coachman, as the bride's father lifted her out, and I swear no one got out the carriage. We carried her into the house in her bridal dress and drew back her veil. I saw her face. Shall I ever forget it? White, white and drawn with agony and horror, bearing such a look of terror as I have never seen since, except in dreams. And her hair, her radiant blonde hair, I tell you, it was white like snow. As we stood, her father and I, half mad with the horror and mystery of it, a boy came up the avenue, a telegraph boy. They brought the orange envelope to me. I tore it open. Mr. Charrington was thrown from the dog cart on his way to the station at half past one, killed on the spot. And he was married to May Foster in our parish church at half past three, in the presence of half the parish. I shall be married, dead or alive. What had passed in that carriage on the homeward drive? No one knows. No one will ever know. Oh, May. Oh, my dear. Before a week was over, they laid her beside her husband in our little churchyard on the time-covered hill, the churchyard where they had kept their love trysts. Thus was accomplished John Charrington's wedding.
This podcast was produced by Mr. Jim Moon with music from the Eldritch Light Orchestra. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review or a rating so other people can find it. If you really like the show, consider buying us a coffee at coffee.com slash hypnagoria or becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash hypnagoria where subscribers can get exclusive new shows every month and access the Patreon's only podcasting vault. For more nonsense, call into our site hypnagoria.com where you can find all manner of essays and articles on the weird and the wonderful plus my other podcasts plus links to YouTube and all the usual social media gubbins This has been a great library of dreams production 